So this question is all in the wrist. Well, sort of. Good morning. Happy Monday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand and it is perfect. Man, had a really good weekend. Looking forward to a solid week. Let's go ahead and just dive straight into the Q&A. This one comes from the Brain Physio. Kind of an odd name, but we'll go with it. So the Brain Physio says, hi, Bill. Hi, Brain Physio. Uh, any chance you could speak about why some people get an ulnostyloid process sticking out when the form is in pronation? It seems like the carpals are supinated in relation to the radius. How would you relate this to your model? Best regards. So ulnostyloid, okay, prominence there. In brain physio, I think you are absolutely on point. I think what you are looking at is you're looking at, if we could just say a hand that is supinated relative to the, the distal form, so, so primarily the radius where, where we've got that, that relationship. And so what we want to recognize is how do we know um, what we're really looking at? Because this is going to be um, an issue. Uh, if we can't identify the orientation, we're not going to know what we need to do to restore best movement options. And so what we want to recognize is that when we're talking about the, the internal rotation of, of the system, so we've got, we've got forearm pronation, the hand actually pronates as well. And traditionally speaking, if we look at the, the uh, ranges of motion of the wrist, wrist extension and ulnar deviation would be associated with that internal rotation. And so if we are looking at a hand that is supinated relatively to the, the distal forearm, then what we're going to have is a reduction in, in that internal rotation. So this is kind of like having an early propulsive foot in the, in the hand, because what, what we would lack in the foot, we would lack dorsiflexion and, and some of that eversion that we would typically see during, during that maximum uh, pronation moment during middle propulsion. And so, so we've got somebody that can't get to middle propulsion basically through the upper extremity. Now, how can we confirm this? Well, so I came up with a little test called the apple test and it has nothing to do with the fruit, it has everything to do with abductor pollicis longest, so APL, apple test. And so the apple test is basically executed as such. So pay attention. So we do the, the Boy Scout sign. So we oppose the, the thumb and the pinky. We're going to extend the rest and then we're going to maximally ulnar deviate. Now, as I break opposition, if I can pick up more exten extension and, and ulnar deviation, then I know I've got a concentrically oriented APL. And so that would be indicative of a hand that is actually supinated relative to, to the wrist. Now, if it was a negative test, what would happen is I would have already maxed out my extension and my ulnar deviation. There would be no change when I break the opposition. So then you know you've got a hand that is actually uh, capable of pronation. And so there's the difference. So, so that apple test is going to be very, very useful for you to confirm your suspicions that you've got a hand that's supinated relative to the form. Now, if we can understand this, then we, we understand that the solutions are going to be really, really fun because this is where we actually get to use arm training exercises, traditional arm training exercises that people do for, for whatever um, biceps and triceps and, and the brachialis and brachioradialis, etc. So go back to 1985, pick up your Flex magazine and look at the latest arm training article. And what you'll see is a lot of solutions for, for your, your shoulder, elbow and wrist problems. So what we want to understand though is when we're looking for these solutions 
um, is that the shoulder is pretty easy to identify. Our traditional shoulder ER and IR measures are very, very useful in the circumstance to know where our starting position is in regards to the, the uh, thorax and, and the shoulder girdle. Elbow position can get a little hairy because the long bones can actually twist and that creates some, some um, ER and IR differences proximal and, and distal. The thing I want you to keep in mind here, Brain Physio, is that um, when we're talking about end range elbow flexion, so that is an ER position, so that's your inhaled position, so I need dorsal rostral expansion, I need ER at the shoulder, and I need supination at the forearm at the wrist to get that full end range elbow flexion. For elbow extension, it's the opposing strategies. Obviously, it's gonna be an up pump handle, it's gonna be internal rotation, it's gonna be maximum uh, pronation through the, the forearm and, and through the hand. So again, you get to pick your arm exercises, you just have to be able to identify where you are in space. And so, so using your confirming test at the wrist is gonna help you identify the wrist. If you know where the shoulder is, the elbow can be the, the resolution of, of those two. Now, um, if you see something that looks like elbow hyperextension, don't make the assumption is that you've got a, an appropriate orientation and this is just an exaggeration. What you actually do have here is a twist. So you actually have supination at the proximal elbow that is creating this scenario. So under these circumstances, um, you're gonna have to use some form of, of elbow extension activity in pronation to resolve it. So it's gonna look something like that. So keep that in mind when you're looking at, at the elbow orientation relative to the wrist. You can still use your confirming apple test to identify whether you've got a hand that can, that can pronate or whether it's supinated and then you make your solutions from there. So Brain Physio, I hope that answers your question. If it doesn't, please go to askbillharmon at gmail.com, askbillharmon at gmail.com, and I will see you guys tomorrow. Good morning. Happy Tuesday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand, and it is perfect. I'm in a great mood. I got to talk to somebody yesterday that I haven't talked to in, in what seems like forever. Um, picked up right where we left off. It was a great conversation. So I'm thrilled you know who you are. I was thrilled to see you and I'm looking forward to the next call. We are gonna make sure that we follow up. So if you've got a friend that you haven't talked to in a while and that you miss and you, you just haven't talked to him, go ahead and give him a call. Man, that was fun. Anyway, let's dig into Tuesday's Q&A. We got to get rolling here. This one comes from Brian and Brian says, would one always want to try to bias more mid forefoot and big toe loading versus outer heel loading during the entire range of motion during a split squat if the goal is to promote improved hip and pelvic external rotation? And then he follows up with a second, would we always want to use an ipsilateral load as well to achieve the same goal? So Brian, this is a really good question because um, we're going to be talking about, about biases, which you, you know that I am, I'm a big, big fan of. But let's go through um, some of the foot mechanics stuff just as a quickie review. And then we'll kind of show why we probably want to come up with a little bit different strategy than, than, than what you're offering. Okay, so if we look at the foot, Okay, and remember we got our, our three rockers as, as is commonly described. So we've got a heel rocker and that gets us from, from ground contact to this early position. We've got ankle rocker which takes us from this ER position to IR position so the arch comes down. And then we've got our late propulsive strategy which is the toe rocker which brings us back to this ER position. Okay, so we go ER, IR, ER as is commonly found in almost every motion that, that we talk about. Now, 
So what you brought up was cueing lateral heel contact throughout the split squat. And, and I understand where you're going with this, but there's a couple things that we have to understand about these foot mechanics as we come into this early propulsive strategy. So we've got, we've got tibial ER, we've got traditionally a supinated foot. So we've got ER through the system. We've got first and fifth met heads down. We've got a, a calcaneus on the ground in this, this early position. <clears throat> One of the things we want to understand is that the, the deep posterior compartment of the calf, so the Tom, Dick, and Harry. So we've got tibialis posterior, we've got flexor halicis longus, and then we've got um, flexor digitorum longus posteriorly comes down around the medial ankle. So that muscle, that group of muscles is going to be concentrically oriented, but it's also going to be using an, an overcoming strategy at heel contact, but then this becomes a yielding strategy as the foot as the foot comes down to the ground the reason that we want a yielding strategy is because we want to distribute load load through the tissue so we have to create a yielding strategy so we have energy storage for the energy release and so the yielding strategy is going to be through through the the bone um, through the connective tissues and, and through the musculature itself where the the connective tissues lie and if we don't have that then something's going to have to sort of take up the slack. So if I cue lateral heel throughout, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna promote a strategy that maintains a concentric overcoming action throughout the excursion of the exercise. And maybe there's a circumstance that you might want that, but under most circumstances, we don't want that. So here's where that shows up in the real world. When you get your runner that comes in with a posterior tibial stress syndrome or shin splints or whatever you wanna call it, they're typically using a concentric overcoming strategy as they run. And so the bone then becomes the, the only source where we're getting any significant yielding strategy. And so that's why you get tibial stress. This is what the end game is your, your tibial stress fractures. And so what we want to do is we want to teach people to distribute those loads for energy storage and release in a much more efficient manner. So Brian, what I would do is I would take your little heel wedge or something like that and I would be working the front foot in this heels elevated position because what this does, it's going to bias us towards that early propulsive strategy um, without altering the, the, the foot mechanics. And so we can still get our concentric yielding strategy. We're just biasing ourselves back towards that, that external rotation element of the, of the full propulsive um, excursion. Um, so now let's move to the pelvis. Let's talk about the pelvis orientation because we can create that bias as well. And so I'm gonna hold the pelvis in this orientation so you can, so you can kind of see this. So uh, real quick. <clears throat> So remember, early phase, ER uh, bias, middle phase, IR bias. So when we're talking about a split squat, we're moving from, we're moving through rather ER to IR and then back, back to ER. And if we're talking about the, the lead foot, um, so what we can do though, is we can bias this lead foot towards more extra rotation, more intra rotation. We're gonna go ER to IR under every circumstance. But again, we can create a little bit of a bias. And so what I can do is I can position, I can position the ilium and the sacrum in a little bit more of a bias. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna create this yielding strategy at, at the, the base of the, of the sacrum here, and I'm gonna be ERing this ilium. And so, so what this would look like would be to project the, the knee forward 
in the, in the sp split squat. So before I even lower myself into the split squat, I'm gonna create a stronger bias towards ER, and then as I descend, I'm gonna get less IR as I go down through that, that middle range excursion towards what we would consider 90 degrees of, of hip flexion. So right away I get to bias it. If I wanted to do the opposite, what I would do is I would shift backwards and I would create a little bit more of a, of a bias towards internal rotation. And then as I go down into that excursion, I get more internal rotation as I approach 90 degrees of hip flexion. So this is just your typical hip shifting kind of a bias that you would be using. But the cool thing about this is the load position now that you mentioned is also an influence. So what I can do is I can take the contralateral loading and I can, I can bias it towards internal rotation. So I create those same hip mechanics that I just showed you to bias towards internal rotation to lower myself into the split squat. If I use the ipsilateral load, I create the hip bias towards external rotation. Now here's the, here's the question mark. It's like, what are you trying to achieve? Are you trying to improve my ability to maintain external rotation? So under those circumstances, I create the hip mechanics that are biased towards external rotation, and I use the ipsilateral load. It makes it easier to acquire those, those range of motion mechanics. However, at some point in time, what I may want to do is challenge that and actually produce force into external rotation under those circumstances, I'll bias it towards the internal rotation mechanics. So I have to push myself up and out of those internal rotation mechanics to create more external rotation. So Brian, this is a great question. Very, very useful. Um, just keep in mind that, that um, all we're doing is creating biases. Internal and external rotation are superimposed. And so again, it's like how we start is gonna influence how we move through that middle excursion and then how we end. Thanks again, Brian, for the question. If you have any more questions, go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and I will see you guys tomorrow. Tennis elbow is not just for tennis players. Good morning, happy Wednesday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. Great Wednesday. Going to be busy. We got to dig right into uh, today's Q&A. And it is from Jared2Rs10. Jared says, hi, Bill. Hi, Jared. Uh, thanks for all the information you post. Most welcome. Um, I saw the video you posted about wrist positions and was wondering if you have any solutions for something like tennis elbow. It seems like elbow position would be something to be concerned about asking for a friend. Well, Jared, let's see if we can help your friend a little bit. Um, the first thing that we wanna, we wanna ask, um, we're talking about lateral elbow pain, so unfortunately it gets branded as, as tennis elbow for some reason, not really sure where that came from, other than the fact that tennis players do experience this, um, but anybody can, um, you'll see it in the weight room quite a bit as well. But ultimately what we're dealing with is a situation where we have too much pressure or tension in one place and then that's going to result in, in a pain experience. So it is an elbow result. It's typically not an elbow problem, although you can identify changes there that, that um, sort of take the blame a lot of times for, for why we do have pain. But we want to think about orientation of the elbow um, as 
as a possible um, influencer and then as also as a possible solution. So we think like, okay, shoulder bones connected to the arm bone, arm bones connected to the elbow bone kind of a thing, but all of that is attached to the axial skeleton as well. And so we wanna make sure that we have full adaptability through the axial skeleton, then we have full adaptability at the shoulder, elbow, hand, wrist, etc. And so if we don't have that full adaptability proximally, then we're gonna to have to create some sort of compensatory strategy distally. Now, let's talk about this, this elbow a little bit, a little bit more specifically um, as far as why we might see this, this lateral elbow situation. So if we think about any activity, any activity that's gonna drive shoulder external rotation and elbow extension at the same time. So I think one of the reasons why we can brand this as a tennis elbow thing is because if you're hitting a backhand, I need a pretty strong elbow extension and I'm driving shoulder external rotation at the same time. Now, a little thing to remember about triceps. So triceps um, is branded as this elbow extender, which it is technically speaking, but it's a twister. So remember, everything moves on helical angles. So, so the elbow joint moves on a helical angle. So triceps is a twister. So the cool thing about triceps is that it can actually assist with that shoulder external rotation. So if I'm driving anything with a strong shoulder external rotation and elbow extension at the same time, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna get a medial, uh, posterior medial compressor strategy above the elbow. So think about all the fibers uh, that, that are medial um, to, that, to the line of the humerus that would be triceps compressing um, that space. Now, if that happens, that creates external rotation in the shoulder, which is really, really nice and handy. But, but the big problem that we end up with is that we um, have a, a situation where the lateral aspect of triceps is now eccentrically oriented. So if we looked at the elbow capsule, we get a compression on that, that posterior medial aspect of the capsule. We'll get an expansion on the posterior lateral aspect. And now I don't have a really good elbow extension mechanism. Um, like I normally would if both aspects of the triceps were intact. And so now I have a substitution problem. So anything that can potentially extend the elbow is gonna try to help along. So now I got Anconius, a tiny little thing that's gonna try to extend the elbow. Supineer is gonna try to extend the elbow. Anything that's attached to the common extensor tendon is gonna try to extend the elbow. And so now I have muscles that were not well designed to produce this force, trying to produce this force. And so I get a lot of pressure and tension at the lateral elbow. And so, um, what I want to do is I want to show you a way to test this, um, which is kind of counterintuitive. We're actually going to use elbow flexion as, as our assessment, because if you think about if I create a, a, uh, a posterior medial compression on the, the inside of the elbow, I'm also going to then have a resultant expansion on the anterior medial aspect of the elbow. And so what happens is as I try to flex the elbow, because of the, the medial aspect being full of fluid, I can't compress there. So as I, as I flex my elbow to end range, I'm gonna do it in a slightly pronated position. So the test that I'm looking for here is supinated elbow flexion with full compression at end range. And so I took Eric into the purple room because I, I kind of figured that, that he would have a little bit of a deficit that we could actually show you in real time. So we'll, sh we'll show you the change. So the first thing I did is I, I put him up on the table there and we flexed the elbow fully in a supinated position. You can kind of see where the end range stops. But then I took him out of supination. I put him in a little bit of pronation. You can see I can compress the elbow more fully. 
Now we're gonna go over to the left side as a comparison, and right away we see that we do have this fully, fully compressible supinated elbow flexion as, as our comparison. So basically, um, Eric is showing us this, this elbow orientation that we're talking about. So here's the fix, if you will. What we're gonna do is we're gonna drive external rotation through the entire system on that, that right side. So we're gonna start, we're gonna do a, a dumbbell curl. We're gonna cheat the hand over to the inside edge of the dumbbell. That's gonna promote supination right away. Now Eric is pressing his thumb on, onto the inside of that dumbbell, and so that is ER of the hand. So we're driving external rotation from the hand up. Then if you look at this body orientation, we have the, the thorax, the shoulder, the humerus, and everything is ER'd as he does this, this dumbbell curl. And so it's really, really simple. We're just driving external rotation through the entire system. And what we're gonna get is we're gonna get a, a reduction of that concentric orientation of the medial aspect of triceps. We're gonna, we're gonna restore the orientation of the elbow. And now when we put Eric back up on the table and we check our supinated elbow flexion, now we get this fully compressed look. And so again, it's just a matter of understanding the orientation at the elbow. And now what we should have then is a normal extensor mechanism on the back side of that elbow. So we don't have to substitute with our tiny little muscles like Anconius, supinator, and, and the uh, common extensor compartment. And so hopefully, Jared, that gives you an idea of what you're looking at with this lateral elbow stuff and provides you a little bit of a solution. Keep in mind, it is a solution. It's not the solution. There are other things that can be going on, but this is a really, really common one. So, so I hope it's useful. If you have any other questions, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Tomorrow morning, we got coffee and coaches conference call. So please don't forget that. We'll see you at 6 a.m. tomorrow morning. Have a great day. It's like the same question over and over again. I know. You see how simple this is? That's why I get on here. It's like I just answer the same question every day, right? <laughs> Good morning. Happy Thursday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. Okay. Uh, so I was wondering how does. Um... A, a good morning squat fit into your model so like for example what yeah so somebody can go down straight but when they come up you know their butt raises oh, higher and their shoulders booty goes back it, it goes up yeah uh, yeah it goes back and up compared yeah, they to the they shoulders back first but, yeah they, yeah so so okay. this is assuming that they can go down they, they can bring the bar down vertically are you are you asking me if it's intentional or if it's a compensatory strategy oh totally uh compensatory Okay. All right. So, so let's think about this for a second. So, um, under normal circumstances, right, I have to be able to push up against gravity um, coming up out of a squat. And so um, that requires that I'm capable of producing enough internal pressure to overcome all of the forces involved. So I have internal forces that are created inside of me. Okay. Um, that, that push me, that help me actually get into the squat. So, so if I eccentrically orient the, the pelvic outlet, so the bottom of the pelvis, the musculature there has to eccentrically orient for me to go in the downward direction. Otherwise you can't go down, okay? And so um, now I'm gonna superimpose, let's just say I just put 400 pounds on your shoulders as well. And so now I have that additional uh, force downward, which means that I have to squeeze myself 
even tighter, right? So, so intrathoracic pressure, intra-abdominal pressure to create this incompressible body so I can push up against the load, right? But mm -hmm. as I squeeze myself, I also push the pelvic diaphragm down even harder because I am compressing the amount of space that I have available to me, okay? So, so just take any water balloon, smush it between your hands and pay attention to the part that's at the bottom. That's what you're creating as you go down into the squat. Okay, because I'm going in that direction. So, so I have to have expansion in the downward direction or you cannot go there, right? It's virtually impossible. Mm -hmm. Now, if I push that down and expand in that direction to go in that direction, if I wanna go back up, guess what I have to be able to do? I have to be able to push that back up. It has to go. So the, the pelvic outlet musculature that has descended or expanded or eccentrically oriented in the downward direction has to now become concentric and it has to be able to push upward. Okay. Right. What if I can't do that? So you have a couple of options. You have a couple of options. You push up as far as you can. You stop. You don't go anywhere. Okay. Um, I try to push up. I can't. And I keep going down. Right. Or, or I kick my butt back. I unweight the pelvic diaphragm by creating posterior outlet expansion. It allows me to move backwards a little bit. I unweight the anterior pelvic diaphragm and now I can lift it up against lesser downward force. So I'm just redirecting the expansion so I can lift up with the anterior pelvic diaphragm, but my butt has to go back to do that because it's gonna follow the direction of the expansion. Do you understand? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you're expanding uh, the, the, the uh, posterior pelvis. Correct. So, you're, you're, so, you're yeah. so I'm, right? I'm pushing in. I'm pushing into the to the apex of the of the sacrum, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. So the apex of the sacrum moves backwards. That expands the posterior outlet of, of the pelvis versus the anterior outlet, and so that's why my butt has to go back. And so that's that's just it's just like any other any other sort of uh, hingy motion, if you will, like an RDL or, or even a, like a good like an intentional good morning or whatever it might be. It's like that. My hips will go in the direction of the expansion. But, but, the, but the, the key element here is that I actually unweight that anterior pelvic diaphragm that I need to push upward. So if I unweight it, now I can push it up. Now I capture a position that allows me to pressurize, right? And then I can stand up. So, mm -hmm. so it, it provides me a mechanical advantage against the downward pressure that I have to create to, to push up. That's why you see, like wherever somebody's hips go, that's where you're getting expansion. Like it's a, it's a really nice, simple rule, if you will. Mm -hmm. because, and, and again, it's, it's a universally applied rule. So, so you will always move in the direction of expansion. Then uh, um, the next question for that then becomes about uh, the fight over, is it tight quads? Is it weak glutes? Is it strong back? Like what, where do you stand on that? On like identifying the source of it? I don't. Okay. I don't because then that's that that's what makes uh instagram coaches you know is uh trying right. to identify the right the, the weak muscle or the source of it right it would be really nice if it, so i can take any any muscle which is so ill-defined it's not funny um i can i can take any muscle in your body and i can position you as such to make it appear that it cannot produce force right and then in in return i can also position you to where it can that's so that's typically why people 
um, med, like uh, therapists on here is like any old school manual muscle tests that you do, um, they're still useful in the fact that it will help you uh, confirm positions. Um, so, you know, let's just say that you were testing hip extension, right? Or you were testing glute max. So the traditional manual muscle test would be a prone hip extension kind of a thing where you're, you're testing glute max, right? And I believe they would bend the knee to try to eliminate hamstrings as you would. Um, but, but the reason that that would test, test weak is because you lack the ability to capture the, the traditional hip extension position because the fluid volume in the synovial joint is too far posterior, you can't compress it, therefore you cannot move into that space and therefore you cannot produce force there. And so again, it's, a, it's like there's nothing wrong with the, the, the muscle tissue itself. The muscle tissue produces force. What, what, what the concern is, is, is where are you in space and can you even access that space to produce force? If you can't get there, you can't produce force there. That's all, it's real simple. So what would you uh, train? How would you train to overcome that? Overcome what? Be specific. The good morning squat. Um, well, you got to reduce the load because the, the pressure is too high, right? Mm. So there's a couple of things, right? So I might need, I might need to ex expand, expand to reduce some of the downward force on the pelvic diaphragm, right? So, so you have to, you have to, um, reduce the, the total load, the total pressure requirements, because again, you're just producing too much downward expansion. So, so how much load can I um, superimpose on the system and still produce whatever it is that you're trying to, to, to produce? So if you want a pretty squat of some sort, however you decide what that is, then you have to back it off to, to determine what that threshold uh, capability is. And then you start there. Or you modify, you modify the, the exercise to allow the position to occur, or you change the exercise. So, so moving from like a back squat to a front squat immediately alters the position of the load. Therefore, the expansion, the physical shape of the axial skeleton has to change, which may provide you the advantage that you're looking for in regards to technique. So off of that, one of the things I wanted to ask was like, how, like, what are, what are some of like the underlying principles that you would use when you're you, you teach in a bunch of different environments. You have the coaches call, you have the Facebook group, we got YouTube videos, Instagram, all this and that. Like, how do you, like, what's kind of like the underlying principle of how you get your message across to different groups without either shooting over somebody's head, portraying the wrong message, like reading the room? Like, what is some of like the best teaching strategies you've found to kind of portray to different groups of people? Well, I don't, I don't try to talk to everybody, <laughs> right? I mean, I just don't. I, why do you think I, why do you think I start those, those asinine videos with for the 16%? Yeah, everybody thinks they're in the 16%. Everybody thinks they're in the 16%, but they're not, right? But, but, but the, the reality is, is like, that's why I preface those videos because, because I recognize the fact that there's 84% of the people that don't give a rat's patootie about it. So, so number one is, is I, I only speak to certain audiences, which is good. Um, that way I don't have to change me too much. I do alter communication styles a little bit because you do have to adapt to the people that, that you're talking to. But, but typically what I don't do anymore is, is I don't censor myself. Uh, I, don't, I don't try to talk down as much because um, mostly I don't care. 
Um, Cause if you don't understand me or you don't want to understand me, go somewhere else. I'm fine with that. Um, but, but it, generally speaking, it's like, don't try to talk to everybody. And then it gets a whole lot easier. Right. So that, so the language that I, I just started using my language from my model. Right. And then people have sort of, they either hop on the bandwagon, they go, tell me more about this, or they just go, eh, I think that uh, uh, the the biceps is a class two lever. Is that right? Is, is the biceps supposed to be a class two lever? I can't remember. It was in school. Mm. It was long. It was like 400 years ago for me. Um, but anyway, so so that's the that's the, the, the simple answer, Alex, is like, just decide who you're going to be talking to. And then that determines the, the language that you will use or, or the method that you will use. And then, and then going off of that, what about in, in like person sessions, like when you have students or when you're giving, like, you know, talking with your coaches at IFAST or for example, like if you have an onboarding of a new personal trainer or something like right. that, how does that conversation of where you would start with teaching your model or starting with that information kind of change depending on the room of, of where you're going from right. and like what, what underlying principles do you kind of use to decide what that starting point is? So, so you'll have this, this will be like the same, the same um, process as if you were meeting someone for the first time. So whether it be a patient or a new client or a new coach or whatever, it, it starts with, with a little bit of rapport and questioning. So you get an idea where they may be as far as their, their language or their understanding. And, and so the, the phrase that you always hear is, is meet them at their story. So, um, if somebody is totally unfamiliar with anything that I've ever talked about, then, but they do have exposure to anatomy, physiology, et cetera, I can go speak that language and then bring them towards me. And, and so, so I might have to use some language that I am, I am um, against, if you will, um, and, and then sort of bring them in, in my direction, right? Because I can, I can speak that language too, because I grew up in it. Right, I was forced at gunpoint to uh, to learn the muscles in isolation, and I was I was, you know, on a structural reductionist model for a long time, just like everybody else is. And so, if I can understand that, then that gives me the opportunities to 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 help them come towards me. So that would be the the easy way to do it. Mm. And, and that's why it's important for you to understand history. It's like, so I, you know, I poo-poo dead guy anatomy and structural reductionist models and levers and all that kind of stuff. But it's important that you understand that because number, number one, um, it gives you the opportunity to do what we just talked about. But number two, it gives you an earned opinion where I can say that this is why I think that's wrong, right? Rather than just saying it's wrong because Bill said it's wrong. Is straight plane thinking in human movement kind of like being a flat earther where the model kind of looks like it works, but the more you understand it, the more you realize that it's inaccurate? Good morning. Happy Friday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, we got a little bit of a complex Q&A question, so I want to dive right into it. Um, this one comes from Johnny. And Johnny says, what are some of the key differences between early ER and hip flexion? He put quotes around flexion because Johnny gets it. Um, he says, what's the difference between early ER and later ER in traditional hip flexion? One of my thoughts is, since there's a reorientation of external rotators above the trochanter into internal rotators within that later ER phase, 
there may be an increase in the magnitude of extra rotation representation within the pelvis during the later ER. Would this result in more counternutation of the sacrum? Johnny, I'm loving the way you're thinking on two levels. The quotes around the hip flexion, yep, the imaginary sagittal plane, and then your thought about how the counternutation plays into this. So this is really, really good. What we want to do is we want to recognize that we've got two representations of external rotation in the pelvis. They, the end position of this kind of looks the same, but how we get there is a little different. So let me show those first, and then we'll try to put this together piece by piece, okay? So when I talk about external rotation of, of, the, of the pelvis, I have an ER ileal position and a counternutated sacrum. But if you think about it, I've got two, two bones that move in, in a, a relative movement to one another. And so I could have the ilium moving in this direction into ER, and that puts me in a counternutated position, relatively speaking, here. Or I could have the sacrum moving backwards. The thing I want you to recognize is, is that if I have the ilium sort of leading the show, I'm going to be turning that way. If I have the sacrum leading the show, I'm going to be turning that way. So this is kind of really important because what we're going to do now is we're going to talk about how how this plays into walking. So let's grab a foot and we're going to talk about some propulsive phases here and then we'll relate it to the pelvis. So if I'm looking at say late uh, propulsion, so this is when the heel breaks from the ground and I'm going to be pushing up and back in this direction. And so, so what this is going to be, this is a, this is a representation of external rotation. So I'm resupinating this foot in that late propulsive strategy. So what it's gonna look like in the pelvis is that I'm gonna have this ilium leading the ER show um, from, from this late propulsive position. So my, my leg is behind me, my heel comes up off the ground, and I'm gonna be driving that ER from here. And so what that's gonna do, it's gonna turn the, the sacrum away from that, that late propulsive foot position. And so now there's my ER, and this is late propulsion. So I've got, I've got concentric orientation posteriorly that's pushing me forward and turning me away. Now, let's go back to the foot. So if I was on the other side, and I'm landing, and so now we're going to talk about the heel rocker position. So I come down to the ground, and when I get that first metatarsal head down on, on the ground, I'm in that position of ER in the foot. So this is also a supinated position of, of the foot, which means that up above in the pelvis, I'm going to have ER. But what I'm actually going to have now is I'm going to have a sacrum moving backwards on this ilium. And so this is the turn towards. So, so again, this is still a representation of external rotation because my relative positions are the same. It's just that I'm turned toward. So now I have a representation in gait of where late is and where early is. Okay, now that's all well and good if we're upright and walking on two legs. But you asked about this, this hip flexion thing. And so now we have to look at it a little bit differently. So if I'm measuring somebody on the table or if I'm performing a squat, I'm actually looking at this more as a quadrupedal type of a gait situation. So I'm gonna look at this hip here. So if I was a quadruped and I was 
and I was walking. As I step forward, my early representation is going to be here and my late representation is going to be here. And so now if I look at this in, in the, the later stages of, of ER in a squat, what I'm actually doing is I'm representing this early propulsive strategy, which means I've got the sacrum moving backwards on the ilium to make that turn. So as I step forward and right as I start to weight that, that extremity, I'm going to turn like that. And so that becomes my early representation, just like when I was at the end of the, of the heel rocker in the foot, I'm going to have that delay right there. That creates the delay strategy that allows me to start to slow down that leg side so the other side can then step forward. Now, the thing that I want you to recognize about this is that it looks like it's in this some imaginary straight plane that doesn't exist. It looks like it's an arc, but it's not an arc. It's a series of shape changes in the pelvis that allows us to access spaces around us and to produce the turning that's associated with the shape change. If we start to think of the stuff in, in arcs like the imaginary sagittal plane and the imaginary frontal planes, it's going to limit our understanding about how the active strategies produce movement or interfere with movement and, and limit our, our movement options. So for instance, if I was an Olympic weightlifter and I had a, this, this posterior compressive strategy on the back of the pelvis, then I know I'm not going to be able to access this, this deeper range of external rotation that I would need from my squat. So what's going to happen is that instead of being able to squat here, I'm actually going to have to move the leg outward. And that's not even external rotation. That's an, actually an internal rotation strategy that's going to allow me to finish finish that deep squat. If I don't understand the fact that, that I'm producing shape changes that produce turns into ER and IR, I won't understand how I can apply load to a split squat to emphasize capturing more internal rotation or more external rotation. So to wrap all this up, what I want you to recognize is that when we're talking about about the, the, the extra rotations that are moving through the pelvis by these shape changes in turns, this, this initial phase of, of, of hip movement in ER is actually this late propulsive strategy. And then as I get into this, this deeper range of ER, this is actually going to be represented by my early propulsive strategies. So hopefully that answers your question, Johnny. Great question. I, I really think that this is an important point to clarify for people because I think they're getting caught up in, in a lot of straight plane thinking that we just have to start to eliminate because it's going to limit our ability to select the appropriate interventions. Everybody have a great Friday and I'll see you next week.